By the time we reach Exodus chapter 19, it has been just over two months since the Israelites left Egypt. And chapter 19 marks a major division in the book of Exodus as the focus shifts to a new location, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. It was intended to be Israel's final rest stop on their way to Canaan, the promised land, and they will be camped here for around 11 months. If you haven't read the text before, Mount Sinai is extremely important because it is where God gives the law. His commands and instructions for life, including the famous Ten Commandments. And here in chapter 19, we're going to see the glory and power of God manifest and come down among his people in a way that can only be described as awesome. Awesome. As we work our way through the text, I want to remind you of a verse that we all love. It's Hebrews 13.8. And it famously says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or how about this one from James 1.17? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God does not change. He was not a different God in the Old Testament. He is the same God today. And this chapter is a much needed reminder for us that our God is holy, powerful, and awesome. And we need this reminder because as we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we can easily start to view the Lord as a man because he's like us in that regard, forgetting that right now Jesus is also fully God. He's fully God. And when we get a little glimpse of the fact that Jesus is God, when we get a little glimpse of what the glory of God actually looks like, it causes us to inevitably agree with the words of David when he wrote in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, I don't often delve into the realm of Bible prophecy, That's a joke if you're joining us for the first time today, but there are prophetic aspects revealed here at Mount Sinai that have both been fulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled. And so I want you to be aware of both. I want to telegraph where we're going with this just a little bit so that you can be looking out for this stuff as we make our way through the text. You can also go back and and revisit this chapter in your own studies this week and see what other little prophetic details the Lord might reveal to you. Firstly, the law will be given in the next chapter, chapter 20, an event that will go on to be commemorated by Israel in the form of the annual feast known as Shavuot, Shavuot in Hebrew, Pentecost in Greek, or the Feast of Weeks in English. The Lord instituted seven annual feasts for his people, and they're laid out in Leviticus 23. Four of them take place in the first part of the year, while the remaining three take part in the latter part of the year, with a long gap of time in between over the summer. Pentecost was the fourth and final feast of that first part of the year, but here's what you need to understand prophetically. All of the feasts point ahead to something greater that the Lord will do in the future. But how do we know that, Jeff? Very simple, because the first four, 
have already been fulfilled. Without getting into too much detail, because that would be a whole message unto itself, let me just give you the bottom line. Pentecost, I'm sorry, not Pentecost, Passover was fulfilled by Jesus, our Passover lamb. The feast of unleavened bread was fulfilled by Jesus as our sinless sacrifice. The feast of first fruits was fulfilled by Jesus, the first to rise from the dead to eternal life. The feast of weeks or Pentecost was fulfilled in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit was given to the church as they prayed in the upper room in Jerusalem. Since Acts chapter two, we have been in that long summer gap of time prophetically before the final three feasts that begin in the fall. But let me tell you, we're almost there. We are almost there. Here in Exodus 19, we're going to see the first iteration of Pentecost beginning, the giving of the law. So you Bible students are going to want to tune your eyes and ears to look for similarities and parallels between this and the greater fulfillment of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Secondly, there's much controversy about what the Bible calls the final trumpet, a trumpet blast that is going to signal the moment when Jesus will call his church to leave the earth and meet him in the clouds in the event known as the rapture. And we're going to get into that controversy today. So you'll want to tune your eyes and ears as well for prophetic similarities between this chapter and the future event known as the rapture. And so with that, let's get into the text of Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain, the mountain being Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you or sustained you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. For you Bible students, just a quick note, the Lord's mention of eagles' wings might take your mind to Revelation 12, 4, when the Lord will once again deliver the Israelites, only then it will be from Antichrist. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, Go listen to our study on the book of Revelation on the website. Continuing on in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Once again, the Lord lays out his desire and his design for Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest is someone who stands before people on behalf of God and stands before God on behalf of people. That's what a priestly ministry is. And God's plan for Israel was that they would become a nation of priests, representing him to the other nations of the earth and inviting them to join in the worship of Yahweh. Now, Israel was never intended to become inward focused. From the beginning, God's plan was that they would be an outwardly focused evangelical people. Uh, 
focused on revealing him to the nations. But obviously, that's not what ended up happening across the centuries. And the Bible teaches that the church is now the fulfillment of that spiritual destiny of Israel. The Lord still has a destiny and plan for ethnic Israel, but on the spiritual side of things, the church is fulfilling the role that Israel was originally called to play. We know this because of verses like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which say, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And Peter's writing there about the church and you can hear it's the exact same mission that God was giving to Israel all the way back here in Exodus 19. The church is fulfilling that now on the spiritual side of things. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be given to them specifically to empower them for this mission, for the mission of representing him to the nations. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we're seeing here at Mount Sinai is is the second major covenant in Israel's history. We're going to see God make the second major covenant. The first was the one he made with Abraham famously back in Genesis 15. And you've probably heard some pastors oversimplify these covenants by saying things like, Well, the covenant in Genesis 15 is completely unconditional, while the covenant in Exodus 19 is conditional. And when I say some pastors, I'm referring to myself because that's what I actually taught when we went through Genesis. But I've thought about this and and I've studied further and I found my position evolving. And I would now say I don't think it's as simple as being completely unconditional or Conditional. I think it's a little more complex, a little more gray than that. And I should say, I hope that all of us are growing in our knowledge of the word and the Lord. And I hope that I'm no different. I hope that I have grown in my understanding of God's word 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if the Lord tarries. And so we should always be open to growing our knowledge and understanding of God's word. And I hope that you're doing the same thing. If you study the Abrahamic covenant, you'll find that there were conditions Abraham had to follow God. That was the condition. He wasn't free to just receive the covenant from God and then go off and worship Baal or somebody else like that, some other pagan God. It wasn't a truly unconditional covenant. And here in Exodus 19, it's not purely conditional either. In both cases, it's kind of both. In verse five here, the Lord says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we understand that Israel has not fulfilled their destiny to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But let me ask you, are the Jews still God's special treasure? Are they still his portion among the peoples of the earth? Does he still have a divine plan for ethnic Israel in the end times? Absolutely. But for thousands of years, they have failed to live up to their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're not even in relationship with the Lord currently. 
Bible nerds, go back, read Genesis 17 carefully, and you'll find that there were clearly conditions to God's covenant with Abraham. However, despite the Jewish people not keeping their part of the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord has still, he has still preserved their land and brought them back into it. And he continues to supernaturally protect them to this day. So what is going on? Well, what seems to be happening in my still evolving view is that the Lord is unconditionally keeping the parts of the covenant that depend entirely upon him. Things like the ethnic line of the Jews not being annihilated, them being brought back into the land, them being specially protected, being financially blessed, etc. But what Israel's failure to keep their side of the covenant has cost them is the opportunity to be truly used by the Lord in a special way. They're not, as we've said now over and over, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They do not represent God to all the nations of the earth. And in my mind, this makes sense as a model of how God deals with his covenants with Israel, because it's exactly how he deals with us, isn't it? When you're saved, you enter into the ultimate covenant, the covenant of family. You become part of the family of God, adopted as a son or daughter of the father. Your salvation is secure. Is it secure because you continue to keep your side of the covenant? No, it's not. Your salvation is secure because it's entirely the work of God. He's the one who brought you in and he's the one who keeps you in. However, if we fail to walk with him, if we fail to be led by the Lord, it costs us opportunities to be used by the Lord. It costs us the opportunity to experience the fullness of his blessings. God always keeps his promises. He always lives up to his side of the covenant even when we don't. But when we refuse to walk with him, he will not be able to use us as he desires to. He's not going to overwhelm our free will. We're simply going to miss out on part of our calling. We will miss out on part of our earthly destiny. Let's keep going in verse seven. It says, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, underline this now, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. As the Lord is about to deliver his law to Moses and the Israelites, we hear them say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And you need to know they were being honest. They were being honest about their desire. They really did want to do all that the Lord was calling them to do. Tuck that away in your mind as we work through these next few chapters in the coming weeks, because it's going to be a case study that will give us the answer to this question. If God tells us what to do and we want to do it, will we be able to do it? Or to put it another way, we're going to learn the answer to this question. If we have the desire to obey the Lord, do we just need the right information? Is that all we need? If we want to have godly relationships, is the only reason we don't a lack of information? We just need more instruction from the Lord. In the coming chapters, we're going to learn a whole lot about questions like that. We're going to learn a lot about the law, about ourselves, and what the law can and cannot do. So stay tuned for these coming weeks. It's going to be fascinating. Keep reading. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you, 
and believe you forever. God says, Moses, I'm gonna do you a solid. I'm gonna give your resume the ultimate reference. Everyone is gonna hear me speaking directly to you and they'll know forever, deep down, that you know me. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Prepare them, make them holy, and let them wash their clothes. This is the first of three instructions the Lord is going to give Israel regarding how they are to prepare for his imminent arrival on the scene at Mount Sinai. And I suggest they're instructive of how we are to prepare ourselves for the Lord's imminent arrival. Firstly, we're told to wash our clothes. Jesus told his disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Paul the apostle told us that the word of God washes us like water. And David observed, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. When we're in God's word on a daily basis, it it affects our mind. It affects our spiritual condition. What happens when we go a few days without washing our bodies? Well, things start to stink, don't they? The same thing happens when we go a few days without being washed by God's word. We become more easily irritated, quicker tempered, fleshlier in our thinking. How do you get ready for the Lord's imminent arrival? Keep your head and keep your heart in his word. Write this down. It's the first fill in on your outline. Wash in the word. Wash in the word. What the Lord is really trying to get the Israelites to understand here is that his presence is not something that should be taken lightly. God is arriving on the scene. This is not a throw on some sweatpants kind of moment. It's not something to be treated flippantly. There should be an anticipation that God is going to do something amazing. And that's how we need to approach our time with the Lord in his word. That's how we need to approach our time together as the church. We need to bring a sense of anticipation with us, having prepared ourselves for his presence. Now, can I be real with you for a moment? Just as a pastor, the Lord is gracious and he speaks to anyone, anyone who wants to hear from him. But I can tell you when I'm preaching a message right at the beginning of the message, I can usually look out. And I can see some people and I can tell if they're likely or unlikely to hear from God during the message. I can tell just by looking at them. When I see someone who has their Bible open, the message outline and a pen in hand, possibly even an additional notebook, I know that I'm looking at someone who is anticipating the Lord speaking to them. They have shown up with an expectation that God has something to say to them through his word. And God, being a loving father who's honored by the faith of his children, he's not going to let that person be disappointed. He's going to speak to them. But then I might look across on the other side of the church and I might see someone slouching back in their chair, no Bible, no outline, just sort of leaning back. Maybe thinking like, oh, I've done the Lord a huge favor by coming to church tonight. I hope he's pleased. And I can just tell, man, I'm glad they're there. The Lord loves them. He wants to speak to them. But they did not come expecting God to speak to them. Their posture and their preparation tells me they are assuming there's nothing God is going to say to them tonight that's going to be worth writing down. And so let me challenge you, even now, while we're doing church in our homes, show up 
in your living room with an expectation, an anticipation that God is going to speak to you through his word. And he will. He will. He will honor your faith because he's blessed by your faith. Expect God to speak to you. Verse 11, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Hmm, you know, when the Bible is redundant, it means something. It means that the Holy Spirit is saying, there's something here I want you to see. And this chapter is gonna use the phrase, the third day, four times. And we're gonna talk about why that might be a little bit later. Let's keep reading in verse 12. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. The second way to prepare for the imminent arrival of the Lord, write this down, is to watch your walk. Watch your walk. Now, I understand there's some loose interpretation in here. I'm sharing what I believe the Lord is pointing out to me in the text, but you pray, you study, and you come to your own conclusions. The Lord told the Israelites where they were and were not to walk while they awaited his arrival. When we realize or we remember that the Lord is coming for us one way or another and that he could come at any time, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we walk through this life. That is why even if we're completely wrong about the rapture, which we're not, but even if we are, what have we lost? What have we lost? What have we lost by living for eternity instead of for this world? Storing up treasures in heaven instead of for this life. What have we lost by living with our hope in heaven? Nothing. Nothing. We have only gained and lived with a perspective from which we will profit for all eternity. Nobody in my church who has heard me teach is going to come up to me in heaven and say, if we were wrong, hey, listen, Jeff, you know, I can't believe that because of your teaching, I wasted my whole life storing up treasures in heaven that I now have to enjoy for all eternity. Jeff, I can't believe that because of the rapture teaching of your church, I was focused on living for Jesus and not for the pleasures of this life. No one's going to say that because we will benefit from living that way for all eternity. It's the wisest way to live. And we're going to get into later in this message why we're not wrong about that rapture. So hold on for that. The Lord is coming. So we need to watch our walk. We need to walk ready. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Now it's not because they have cooties. It's a euphemism for sex. God was saying for these three days, I want you to be completely focused on spiritual things. I want you to set aside your focus on fleshly pleasures and concern yourself 100% with me. The Lord was calling them to a fast of sorts for these three days in anticipation of his arrival. And here's the principle. To prepare for the Lord's imminent arrival, write this down, avoid fleshly distractions. Avoid fleshly distractions. Don't get caught up in sexual sin. 
The Bible has so much to say about sexual sin because it's different to other types of sin. It grabs a hold of you and pulls you in with guilt and shame and addiction like almost nothing else. If you want to be ready for Jesus' arrival, avoid fleshly distractions. Now, hold on, because I can feel some guys with spiritual wives getting nervous as they watch this on the other side of the screen. I need to remind us of what our brother, the wise Apostle Paul, told us in 1 Corinthians 7:5: do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Praise Jesus. Paul says, The couple has to agree. The wife can't just announce, I am fasting from sex for the next three months to seek the Lord. The couple has to agree, and it has to be for a short enough amount of time that it doesn't create problems. It doesn't create temptation. When the Lord called them to do it, three days. That was it, because the Lord knows his people. Verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. This was awesome in the truest sense of the word. This thick cloud thundering and flashing with lightning, yet localized entirely and densely on Mount Sinai, was clearly something other. In addition, there was a loud sound, like a trumpet blasting continually, so powerful that it caused the people to involuntarily tremble. It was the kind of sound that shakes your body to the core. This was not a, oh, cool kind of moment. This was a, are we about to die kind of moment. That's what was going on. These four manifestations of God's glory all appear in Revelation 4, when John describes the scene before the throne of God in heaven. So whether we're on earth or in heaven, whether it's Moses or John the apostle describing it, these manifestations seem to consistently accompany the literal presence of God, the literal presence of Yahweh. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Can, can you just imagine this scene? The idea is that this cloud comes down from a higher elevation on Mount Sinai. It, it's thundering. There's lightning, and there's fire. More than just lightning, there is fire in the midst of this cloud, and it comes and sits on Mount Sinai. Nobody had ever seen or will ever see until the Lord returns anything like this. It was unprecedented. Cloud and fire, you'll recall, are the forms that God's glory took to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. It was their guide at this point in their journey. And we see those same manifestations of God's glory here on Mount Sinai. And we'll see them again when the tabernacle is constructed Again, these just seem to be some of the manifestations of the glory of Yahweh that consistently accompany his literal presence throughout the scriptures. Verse 19, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. 
Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. This was, just in case we're still missing it, this was the actual presence of God, of Yahweh, on the earth, on the earth. The presence of God that is, that is so overwhelming, no human body can actually bear the experience. We can't handle it on an anatomical, atomic, existential level, on every level. It would result in instant death. It's one of the reasons that we're going to need eternal resurrected bodies to be with the Lord in heaven. Our earthly bodies simply can't handle the weight of God's glory in its unrestrained state. This isn't even the full glory of God unrestrained. It's just a glimpse of it. And yet if anyone came too close to it, their human bodies would have simply given out. Couldn't take it. It's just my speculation, but I suspect this was God's way of saying, listen, Moses, I I guarantee you that right now there are some dumb teenage boys daring each other to sneak into the cloud of my presence. Don't let them do it, Moses. It's a really, really dumb idea. So God was looking out for the men of Israel, especially the young men during this time. He's like, you guys are talking about doing something really stupid. Don't do it. Verse 22 Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So any other priests who are going to be ministering to me during this time need to make sure that they're prepared. They need to have cleansed themselves both spiritually and physically. And again, God is just conveying this idea through all of this that he is holy. He is other and his presence should not be taken lightly. In all of this, throughout their journey, since Egypt, the Lord has been instructing, he's been teaching Israel about different aspects of his character, teaching them about who he is and what he is like. And here at Sinai, they're getting a lesson in his holiness. Verse 23, but Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away. Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Now as a side note for you Bible nerds again, this is the first reference in scripture to priests in Israel. And I'm going to mention this as quickly as I can, but I need to point it out because The priesthood is not officially established until we reach chapter 28. And there's really only two possible explanations. The first one that I think is most likely is that there was at this time an earlier unofficial priesthood of some sort in place, possibly consisting of of young men or elders. And if you want to look up Exodus 24, 5, it mentions young men serving in a priestly function before we get to chapter 28. So I think that's likely the case or Something's out of chronological order again in the book of Exodus. Either way, it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't affect the credibility of the account for reasons that we've discussed in earlier messages. Just wanted to point it out on the off chance someone noticed it and was like, wait a minute. With that, we'll move on. I want to talk about prophecy for a moment. Prophecy, because everything that's unfolding here at Mount Sinai is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. We'll read it together. When Moses was struggling with feeling inadequate, we read this, but Moses said to God, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he, the Lord, said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, the mountain being Mount Sinai. Do you notice what God told Moses, though? He told him that the affirmation he was looking for would be waiting for him on the other side, the other side of the assignment. Moses would have to walk by faith through this time. But if he did, the Lord promised there would be a moment on the other side when he would be able to look back and see that the Lord had been with him the whole time. That is how prophecy works. God doesn't give us words of prophecy so we can change the future. That's not what prophecy is for. He does it so that when we arrive at a certain point in the future, we'll remember the prophecy and realize that God was with us the whole time. And we will learn the lesson that God keeps his promises. He's faithful, but he's also able to keep his promises. Prophecies are for building our faith and our trust in God's power and his faithfulness. God said to Moses, I know you don't feel qualified. I know you're not sure that you're up for this, but I'm with you. And there's going to be a moment in the future when the whole nation of Israel, millions of people will be out of Egypt, freed from slavery, gathered around Mount Sinai, worshiping me. And Moses, when that moment begins to unfold, I want you to remember that I told you it was going to happen long before any of it did. And I want you to realize in that moment, you are my man for this task. I'm with you. I've called you. I'm in control. Believe it. Believe it. That's how prophecy works. It's for building our faith. If someone ever shares a prophecy with you, you say, thank you so much. And you write it down with the date somewhere so that later on, if it comes to pass, you're able to look back and say, wow, the Lord was in it the whole time and it'll build your faith. You don't have to try and make it happen. That's not what it's for. If God gives you a prophetic word for someone, you deliver it to them, and then you leave. You don't stick around and say, so do you like it? Is is it like a seven out of 10, like an eight out of 10? Does that sound like pretty accurate? Does that sound like it might be for you? You don't do that. What they think about it is none of your business. The only assignment God gave you was to deliver the message, to deliver the word of prophecy. It's for them And it's between them and the Lord. You deliver it, and then you leave. You're not to stick around and counsel them. Now, I have to point something out because we're there. We're there at this place in the text. Regarding eschatology, the study of what the Bible teaches about the end times, there are some who hold to what's known as a mid-trib theological position. That is to say, they believe that the church will be on the earth to experience the first half of the tribulation before being raptured after three and a half years. They believe that we're gonna be here for a whole bunch of the judgments, for the rise of Antichrist, for all that sort of stuff, all that bad stuff. And one of their main reasons, their main reason for believing this is related to the last trumpet or final trumpet blast that shows up in scripture. And so mid-trib people will say something along the lines of, the last trumpet that Paul the Apostle talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is the same last trumpet that John refers to in Revelation 4.1. It is the final trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments described in Revelation chapters 8, 9, and 12. 
So if the final trumpet is only blown at the end of the trumpet judgments, the church has to be on the earth for those trumpet judgments. And while that might sound like a good argument, it falls apart under some biblical scrutiny. Let me explain. The seven trumpet judgments in Revelation are sounded by angels. The trumpet Paul describes, mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, is called the trumpet of God. A very different thing. The seven trumpets in Revelation announce judgment. The final trumpet, the last trumpet in Scripture, announces the gathering of the saints. It's a completely different purpose. In 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul calls it the last trumpet, which begs the question, well then, what was the first trumpet of God? The answer is right here in Exodus 19, verses 13, 16, and 19. We see God's presence accompanied by the sound of a trumpet not made by men. It's the trumpet of God. Furthermore, in Matthew 24, by the way, Jesus teaches this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So there's this other moment at the end of the tribulation where God gathers together everyone who has turned to him who's on the earth and has survived the tribulation. He brings them all together. That's not the last trumpet at the end of the seven trumpet judgments. So we know explicitly from what Jesus says, there's at least one more trumpet after those trumpet judgments. So it cannot be mid-trib. It doesn't work. There are only two trumpets of God. This is what Numbers 10 verses 1 and 2 speak of when it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. They're for calling the congregation and directing the movement of God's people. Here at the first trumpet of God, God gathers Israel at Mount Sinai. At the last, the second trumpet of God, Jesus gathers his people, the church, to heaven. Here at the first trumpet, God is going to give the law. At the last trumpet, God gives resurrected bodies, completely free from sin. At Mount Sinai, they were being gathered to be birthed as a nation and entered the promised land of Canaan. At the rapture, the church will be gathered to receive resurrected bodies and enter heaven, our eternal homeland. The first trumpet is for Israel. The second is for the church. The first is for the wife of Yahweh. The second is for the bride of Christ. Let's sneak in one more little chunk of Bible prophecy. I'd, I'd ask if that's okay, but there's literally nothing you can do. So we're going to do it because I don't know about you, but I love this stuff. It blesses me. It encourages me. It builds my faith, keeps my heart focused on heaven and eternity. In verse 16, we're told that the Lord came down on the third day, on the third day. Peter, the apostle told us, beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, if that's the case, then we are in the early part of the third day from Christ's first coming. And when on the third day does verse 16 tell us the Lord came down? In the morning. Literally, in the original Hebrew, the word is break of day. 
right at the beginning, right at the sunrise of that day on the third day, which is where we are in the prophetic calendar. Now take a look at verse 20 again, and I want you to underline some things. It says, then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Now what does it say? And Moses went up. Moses went up. The Lord came down and Moses, the man of God, went up. Where? Into the cloud. Into the cloud. Paul described the rapture this way. He said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. I love that. We shall always be with the Lord. Do you see it? It's the same things that are going to happen in the rapture. The Lord comes, the saints go up, and in both instances, the Lord comes down to meet his people in the clouds, in the clouds. How do we know the Lord is going to do it again? How do we know this is really going to happen? Because Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know that we're going to be resurrected again? Because he did it first. He went ahead of us in our place, the first fruits of the dead. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, then we know that we can take him at his word when he says that we will do the same thing and we will be resurrected into eternal life at that incredible moment of the rapture, one way or another. We're gonna be with the Lord. We're gonna meet him in the clouds. Church, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God. He is just as awesome. He is just as holy. He is just as powerful as he was at Mount Sinai. The difference, the only difference, is that we're now covered by the blood of Jesus and robed in his righteousness. The difference is that now we can come before the Father as his adopted sons and daughters. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us and because Jesus was the forerunner who went ahead of us in our place in all things. May we not take the Lord's presence in our lives and in our gatherings lightly. When we sit down to read the word in the morning or we sing a worship song in the car or we pray for a moment, may we not take that lightly. May we be aware of the weight of glory that we have access to through Jesus. God did not give us access to himself by lessening himself eternally to something less than God. He is still fully God, fully great, fully glorious, going from glory to glory. Access was granted through the blood of Jesus. Church, wash in the word. Watch your walk and avoid the distractions of the flesh. It's the most profitable and wonderful and liberating way to live. But more importantly, the king is coming and he's coming soon and his arrival is imminent. Let's live ready for it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes wherever you're at? Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, that because you are alive, we will be with you forever. Thank you that you have conquered death And thank you that we can take you at your word because you have proven before human witnesses that you have power over death. And we can't wait to be with you, Lord. Thank you that your glory is not diminished in any way, but is only increased. And thank you that your eternal plan is to fit us with new bodies that will be able to behold you in your fully glorified state. 
And we can't wait to see you face to face. We cannot wait to see you face to face. Help us to be focused on eternity, not to get distracted even by COVID-19 or anything else, but to stay focused on the most important thing, which is waking up every day, ready to live for you, ready to preach you, ready to die for you, if that's what the moment calls for. We are living for eternity because we are citizens of heaven. And in the time between now and then, we are in your hands. We are in your hands and you will be faithful to provide for everything we need. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.